0: Good morning, beloved. Morning. Uh, we'll continue our study in Ecclesiastes this morning. We'll look today at verses 9 through 15. So let me open with reading those. Um, we'll pray and then we'll, we'll uh, go over this together this morning. Verse 9, Ecclesiastes 3. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Well, last time we were together, we looked at Ecclesiastes 3, uh, focusing focusing in on verse 1. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then in verses 2 through 8, uh, the preacher illustrates that fact with a poem about time. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, uh, described by parallelism of thought which is a Hebrew style of poetry. You know, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck, and so on. And the key to understanding the message of Ecclesiastes is uh, the biblical understanding of time. Because in many ancient cultures, uh, they, they affirmed what's known as a, a cyclical understanding of time, a view that, a view that says time is a one recurring loop. It has no beginning, has no end. Um, history somehow gets started. Somehow, some way, and then it goes through a cycle of events. It ends, it starts again, and it goes through the same sequence over and over again, uh, right into infinity. And if time is cyclical, then we're stuck in a recurring pattern. We have problems greater than time itself. There's no transcendent meaning to anything that happens if, in life if, if life is, is cyclical. There's no advance. There's no final evaluation of all things or events that take place throughout time. Now, the Holy Scripture, on the other hand, presents a, 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 linear, a linear view of time in history. Um, there is a, a definite beginning to history, which is creation itself. That is the work of God and creation. And then after the work of creation is the work of God's providence. He creates, and then by way of providence, he governs and controls all that he has created. So he brings to pass in time what he ordained before time. And consequently, then, all things are, are moving to one, towards one final glorious end, where the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be consummated. And as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, God will be all in all. So this portion of Scripture, Ecclesiastes, is, is Solomon's answer to the despair and pessimism of, of a naturalistic or, or humanistic view of life, Under the sun. And because the Lord has written history as his story, uh, we know there's an appropriate time um, for all events, um, none of which are pointless, though we don't understand them. There's still meaning and purpose in them um, and through them. And as far as God is concerned, quite simply, uh, there's a time for everything. And though we don't always know what time it is, so to speak... Uh, that is, times that we cannot make sense of as regards circumstances in our lives, or just looking at the world itself. Though we may not understand the times, our sovereign Lord in heaven, providential ruler over his creation, has created a universe, he's created us, and has created time itself, and has assigned meaning and purpose To all of it. This is the lesson that we learn or must learn um, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now some people, as you know, respond to that frustration um, by trying to press God out of the equation. They invent their own interpretation of the universe. Which which is, is the very antithesis of wisdom. For what is wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is... Fear the Lord. So the modern evolutionary view says that everything that's occurred in history has come by way of chance. There's no divine mind behind all things they, they claim. You know, pre existing matter just came to be through whatever mechanism they decide to, to, to say it came, came about. From. So life and order has evolved. It's all by way of chance. And therefore, life itself and the events that happen therein are irrelevant. For they say there is no God. There's no accountability. And they, the Bible says, are the fools of the world. For Psalm 14 says it's the fool that says in his heart there is no God. Psalm 92 5, look at that. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed for destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. So as eternal as the Lord is, so is final destruction and doom, which is hell, is as eternal. Their doom and destruction is forever. Now before the foundation of the world, the one who is on high forever, Lord God Almighty, decreed a plan. He decreed a plan. God who is the God of wisdom, the God of order, The God of design had a divine blueprint. And it's a blueprint that encompasses everything. And this, of course, involves high and holy thoughts that are beyond um, our finite mind's ability to grasp fully and completely as these things are carried out. So as God's providence unfolds, it's unfolding a plan, and that plan was preordained in eternity past, and human beings under that plan, that is those made in his image, are not, and I repeat, are not pre-programmed robots. But instead, they're image bearers of God who think and act and react, whose choices are real as God's sovereignty in and over them, that is, the people and their thoughts and their acts and reactions as regards the working out of history. He is sovereign over it all, in it all, and through it all. So that is to say, God determines the what, the where, the when, and the why of all things that take place. As confusing as that may be to our finite fallen minds. So the the changing scenes of life, we can be certain as Solomon is trying to communicate, um, are ordained by God. That's the message of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. We know God's plan. We know his providence. I mean, we don't know, know the intricacies of it, but we know everything that happens is his plan carried out by way of his providence. And we know this not by reason of experience, or, or human reasoning. We know this by way of divine revelation. Amen? That's why we know. That's why we're here this morning. It's divine revelation as, as the scriptures unfold for us. And we accept it on the basis of the authority of God's word. That's what it is to live by faith. In Ephesians 1.11, It is according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will? He works all according to the purpose of his will. So the question is then how are we to respond as he works out his plan? His plan for our lives, our families, our country, our church. How are we to respond? Verses 9 through 15 describe how you and I ought to respond to these truths. And that, quite simply, is that we are to submit to his time and his providence. So here now we continue on with verses 1 through 8 in our mind. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for every season under the heavenly reign of our sovereign Lord. And then here in verse 9, Coleth raises the question... What gain has the worker from his toil? That is, what gain or what profit is there in attempting to avoid what he's just spoken about in verses 1 through 8? That's the context. Answer: it's futility. (laughs) It's pointless trying to avoid that which God has ordained. Okay, God has ordained that you're going to age. Running to the uh, dermatologist to get facelift after facelift does not reverse this. (laughs) As good as you may look. And if you're going to get your face done, make sure that they do your neck. (laughs) So many people forget. (laughs) So trying to avoid it, you know, what gain is a worker from his toil? And resisting this is futility. You know, we, we cannot control whether or not we're in a season, for instance, of mourning or laughing. You don't control whether or not you're in the season of planting or plucking. Okay, now you can in your human free will... You can plant in the winter if you like, right? And you'll be the fool for doing it because you'll never pluck up a harvest. There'll be no harvest if you plant in winter. God provides those seasons. There's nothing you can do to change it. So don't plant in the winter. Verse 10, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So, in other words, you know, trying to resolve uh, these kinds of things in the mind of fallen human beings is travail. It's a difficult task. Solomon says that's a hard business. This is similar to to language we've already heard in chapter 1. Remember that? Describing a desire to understand this world and all the things in it. Chapter 1, verse 13. I, he says... Applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. That's where that phrase appears. Under remember, under the sun, and then there's the phrase to contrast it under heaven. And there he says, "It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with." Okay, is it fair to say that man has a natural desire to, to control events and seasons of life? Absolutely. And he's trying to do it in in his fallen condition. And and because of sin, uh, creation's been subjected uh, to vanity. You know, we live on an earth that that is currently under judgment. And and, and it groans, the scripture says, with anticipation for the day of the Lord. So as a result, man, man attempts then to be his own little God, trying to control what he has no control over. That's the idea. That's the thought. He tries to control that which he has absolutely no control of. Now, God has no doubt, obviously, as as creatures made in his image, he's given us responsibilities, and to some measure, we do exercise control. Amen? We do exercise some control. You make plans for tomorrow. They could change. <clears throat> you make Make plans to move here or there, but don't be so bold as to say we're going to do this and we're going to do that on this particular day, this particular time. James reminds us in James 4, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's what we're going to do. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. Language sound familiar? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Amen. If the Lord wills. So the message throughout Scripture is consistent, is it not? We respond by humbly submitting to the providence of Almighty God. That which He provides. That which is His provision. He he provides... uh, uh, relationships, he, he provides what we might call divine appointments as we mingle and meet other people on, throughout life. So uh, we don't need to fight this. We do not want to try to control this because we cannot. You'll have many sleepless nights if you try to control that which you have no control over. If you worry uh, incessantly, if you think about it, most of the things for which we worry Oftentimes, it's never come to pass. And you worry yourself into a frenzy. And you get an ulcer. (laughs) Or, Or whatever. Now, as far as responsibility goes here, we're not talking about sin and moral responsibility because those are things for which we are always responsible. It's the Christian who's the fool. Who, in his frustration... Uh, because of his own sin, throws his hands up and just says, I'm justified by faith, and I'm not going to engage in trying to fight against my sin. That is stupidity. We're always responsible, are we not? To obey God's word and apply the principles of scripture to our lives because we can. All the while realizing, I cannot control anyone else in this area you know, one of the gifts of the Spirit is not other people control. (laughs) You you, you think, now, you have a certain level of control in raising your children. When they get to a certain age, you just no longer have control. Amen? There is a fruit of the Spirit known as self-control. Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, And self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit, again, is not other people control. You can't make them believe. You can't sanctify them in the truth. You can preach the truth, herald the truth, counsel with the truth, love according to the truth. But you do not control, you cannot control how they respond to it. You can only control how you respond to it. Okay, so those are things we are responsible for, according, once again, to to, to the Word of God. We can control ourselves in the midst of events over which we have no control over. So when events come into our lives, we don't have control of that, but what we do have control of is how we respond in midst of that, whatever that is. So Solomon says, what profit is, is it for you to fight against what you can't control? Instead, the principle is, you know, believe in, trust in the plan and providence of God. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So he says, everything in its time, in its time, is a thing of beauty. Man, these texts have really ministered to me over these weeks. I told the guys on Thursday, I'm a big sovereignty of God guy. I'm glad I was never plagued with Arminian theology. And in God's grace, even so... I still find myself troubled over certain things of which I have absolutely no control. Zero. (laughs) So again, the Word of God has really ministered to me in in my own personal life, um, having been studying this now for a number of weeks. So he says, everything in its time is a thing of beauty, and that's my point. This is what he's reminding me of. The Holy Spirit's reminding me that that everything in its time, according to his timing, is a beautiful thing, not my timing. It's a thing, literally, it's a thing of excellence. Beauty here is, is excellence. It's like a master craftsman. He's about to bring beauty out of something, whether it's, uh, it's a blank uh, um, canvas or, or a slab of granite. And he, he carves and he chips or he paints in something beautiful or something excellent is now made visible for everyone to see. The beauty was in his head, it was in his mind. He's the, the creator, so to speak. And what he has and what he's going to produce or what he's going to carve out of this slab of stone, and it becomes a thing of beauty. So this is, is that beautiful is modifying everything here. It's planned by his decree, brought to pass in his providence. He makes beautiful times of love, times of hate, times of war, times of peace, times of weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing. In time, they're made a thing of beauty. We, we may not be here to see the manifestation of the beauty, but ultimately, in his presence as believers, for which we are guaranteed, we will see it as the beautiful thing, as the excellent thing, That it ultimately is. So beautiful is something excellent um, as regards its quality. And beautiful in in form or or appearance. The same word used to describe Sarah and and Rachel. The scripture says that they were beautiful, referring to their their outward form. That's the idea. That's, That's the picture being drawn. So again, a painter or a a sculptor conceives in their mind what they're going to create. We sit, we scratch our heads, and I don't see it. I don't get it. It looks like a blob. And then when he's done or or she's done, it's a thing of beauty. I have to be politically correct sometimes. He or she. Just joking. We don't have the proper distance to view things, you know. If you you do a large painting, you know, I'm an amateur painter, total amateur painter. And I did a painting that's like a three by four feet. And up close, it's like, yeah. And if someone says, huh, I says, man, you got to step back. Right? So it's hanging a part of my garage that I turned into a hangout place. And you can see it like, from the sidewalk, actually, if the garage door's up. I says, if you step back to the sidewalk, then you can see it. And you're like, oh, now I see it. We don't have distance as regards God's painting or sculpture or whatever. We don't have the distance. It's like the backside of a tapestry. Right? We have one of those hanging in the house, too. In the backside, it looks you know a bunch of threads going every which direction. You know what it looks like. It looks like a mess. It's when you turn it over. It's a thing of beauty or, or excellent, It's something excellent. Philip Riken comments, and he says, while God has a complete view, all we have is a point of view. That's rich, isn't it? You might want to write that down. Philip Riken. While God has a complete view, all we have is a point of view. And how many times is our point of view skewed? almost every time. That's why we need the word to straighten out our crooked thinking. So that's basically uh, the the perspective um, from which we view the preordained times or seasons um, for which um, Koaleth, the preacher, the teacher, speaks here. Verse 12, I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful. Okay, say, look, Instead of fighting against what you have no control over, instead of trying to control that which you can't control, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. It's a gift from God to man. This is God's gift to man. Now... That advice echoes back again. You've already heard this, chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person, verse 24, chapter 2. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw from, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? It all comes from him. So in this case, since, since human beings cannot fully comprehend The times that that God has preordained, you know, let let alone you know trying to control them, it's best to concentrate on the present. That's his point. On the present, and enjoy God's providential gifts. I was talking to Ryan this morning about some things, you know, and like you know, much of the Christian life is to enjoy the Lord, enjoy Him. Verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. This, that is there's nothing better than there's nothing better for them to be joyful as compared to fighting against providence. That's the context. Again in the context. Don't, don't fight against providence, enjoy life. And then to do good means to do good works. To do good works not so as to earn your way to heaven, amen, we don't earn our way, but to do good works that God has given us to do according to the gifts that he has distributed. Verse 13, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So, basically, If we think about this, the advice here, the wisdom is, is if you'll stop trying to change what you can't change, either by way of your effort or your wishful thinking, if you'll stop expending all your energy just wishing things were different, if you'll stop lying in this bed of depression that you have made for yourself and start resting in and submitting to the providence of Almighty God, and then get busy with the task that's before you, that whatever that task is, that is the work you do with your hands, that which God has gifted you to do, you'll have a lot less stress. <laughs> you'll be amazed at how much better you feel. I mean, that's really the advice. And then you'll be free to do whatever, that is, whatever you're gifted to do with, with all your might. Whatever gifts God has, has given you, then you'll be amazed at the transformation that takes place. I mean, that's, that's his wisdom here. I mean, what do we? In Ephesians two, we are His workmanship. Amen. We're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Listen to this, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. And then verse 14, it's it's the key verse to this passage. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that what? People will fear before him. That they'll fear the Lord. So the times God sets, they're unchangeable. You can't add to it. You can't take it away. Take away from it. You can't rework the past. So no. It endures. God's done it all so that we might stand, here it is, in awe of him. It's not to be terrified by him. It's the fear of the Lord is to stand in awe, to revere him. He's wise. How many times have you experienced something and you're pulling your hair out D- during it? And then after that season passes, you look back and say, oh, Wow, had that not happened, this, this, and this would not have happened. And all you can do is go, Wow, Lord, sorry, I repent. You're wise, I'm a fool. Lord have mercy. This is the prayer I woke up with this morning. Lord have mercy upon me, a sinner. He's done it all that we might fear him. You know, when we feel the earthquake beneath our feet, I was talking with this is the discussion we had with the men Thursday. If you live in Kansas, Rob, <laughs> and you see a tornado come in your way. Do you run towards it or away? <laughs> you run for cover. You take cover. That's the pick. I mean, this is, these are terrifying experiences. When Israel saw the thundering and the lightning on Sinai, they heard the word of God speak. What? They trembled. But oftentimes, when, when uh, uh, the manifestation of God isn't visible like that, oftentimes, not unlike Israel... We rebel against God. We don't revere or stand in awe when things seem not so spectacular. And Israel rebelled many, many times. So we have to remember that he controls uh, the tempest as well as the calm. He controls the storm. He's in control of the storm, no less than when all things are calm. Amen? So so his times, we're talking about time, uh, makes us aware of our total absolute dependence upon God. That's what we're being reminded of. So then we can rejoice in the truth of Romans 8.28. Amen? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And because God works all things according to his own purpose... Jesus says in Matthew six twenty five, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and in it your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We have three bird feeders in our backyard, and it's my responsibility to keep them filled up. And they've been empty for about three days. And there's no birds, right? They're smart. They're very smart. And sometimes it looks like a flock of seagulls or a flock of uh, doves back there or sparrows, whatever. And so I filled them up yesterday, and I said to my wife on a couple of occasions, and I said, word's not out yet the word's not out amongst the birds that the feeders are full she goes well just wait till till dusk sure enough there they were there they were God feeds the birds and in this case he happens to feed them through my hands through our seed that we buy at Home Depot <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless they're, they're not out there tripping even though the sparrow's a bird of anxiety little paranoid little guy he knows he's going to eat. God will provide. So that's where Jesus says, you know, are you not of more value than they? Jesus goes on to say, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So now the preacher, he, re- he reiterates this point one more time. Verse 15. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, Already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So, the first part of this verse, again, we heard back in chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, under there's nothing new under the sun. And that is bringing up again that, that humanistic, naturalistic views of life or experience is vanity, it's empty. So here he provides an answer to the under-the-sun view, that there's a progress. Okay? We see progress as he's writing. There's progress in this life. Although man may not be able to see it, not able to discern it, there's hope because there's a God who's in control. Absolutely, sovereignly in control. So the difference between chapter 1 and this section is that that chapter 3, we see it it credits all things to this sovereign God. It's a view under heaven rather than just under the sun. Again, that contrast. So Koaleth, the preacher, the teacher, he's he's helping us make progress in in understanding uh, the universe who rules it. So things that are outside of our control need not, they need not cause us despair because we live under heaven, not merely under the sun. Now the last part of that verse, a little more difficult, where he says that God seeks what has been driven away. Um, It's a a poetic way of, of talking about that which has already occurred in the past be it good, bad, or indifferent. Some will interpret it like this, that God is going to call the past into account. In other words, he will bring every deed into judgment. And we do see that written just like that in chapter 12. He will bring every deed into judgment. That's absolutely absolutely true. Others interpret this because the language uh, is, is so positive it suggests, they say, that God is looking to redeem the past. Not simply judge, not simply to render judgment, which he will do. Both are true. But also he'll redeem the past. In other words, by his grace, and I quote one writer, he will recover what seems from our vantage point to be lost forever. Makes sense. In the positive. Because there are a lot of things that seem lost forever while we dwell here. And here, he will redeem it. We'll, we'll see the redeeming value of it. And again, Reichen says this, The same God who put eternity into our hearts will make everything beautiful, including things past that now seem lost or broken all in his good time, end quote. And then verse 16 and 17, it's a swing in another direction, really, um, as the phrase under the sun uh, reappears. I was going to go into this. We're almost out of time, so I'll stop. Okay, so we're done this morning. (laughs) This is a time to be done. Under the sun, so since we're done, um any questions or comments yes, ma'am Armenian theology uh, oh Armenian theology is just uh that for instance that salvation is uh, synergistic. I'm talking in a salvific sense more than anything else, meaning uh, um, some teach that, you know, God provides an equal amount of grace to everybody, and now it's up to you to exercise it and mesh with God's grace, and then it becomes the synergistic work of both God and you to be saved. Compared to what the Bible teaches, that sovereign grace is monergistic, it is all the work of God alone. In other words, you play absolutely no part whatsoever in being saved. It is the absolute sovereign grace of God. That's what I mean by that. Which helped me understand as I was growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ as a young Christian, that not only is God absolutely sovereign as regards my salvation, he's also sovereign um, over time. And, and though we struggle with that, it, it, it helped me to accept it a little easier, I believe, than some friends I have who are really trapped in an Arminian view of, of uh, soteriology, of salvation, and you see it show up in their daily life. You know, oh, the devil won that one, or, or whatever. And God's almost now out of the picture, as regards things in life, especially things that that are, are troublesome or when evil appears, a manifestation of evil with someone you know being murdered or you know, blown up buildings, crashing into the twin towers. And when the question was like, where was God? You know, I heard this. Where was God when the Twin Towers were attacked? Answer Same place he was yesterday, on the throne, ruling and reigning over his creation and his creatures. Yes. He was alive in many of the hearts of those who were saving people and helping them get out. Knowing they were going to die, they did it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, God's uh, gracious goodness, kindness, love, and mercy was, was shown through through many of his servants um, who were in Christ and other image bearers who weren't even in Christ. Amen. Because God is the one who's sovereign. That's, does that answer your question? Okay. Anybody else? Um, more and more like a statement. Um, he also provides uh, chastisement for those of us who need it. Can I get an amen, John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I told uh, what was oh, it was in there, uh, Wednesday night. Yeah, going off of what you said. We're uh, talking about church discipline. And, uh, you know, church discipline in in that if a brother sins against you, you know, don't run to the pastor. Don't run to your friend. Go to the one who sinned against you and, and, you know, lovingly confront them or the issue. If they don't repent, take two or three. If they don't repent, then you tell it to the church. If they don't repent, then you cast them out as an unbeliever. That's what we're talking about. What I said was um, step 1A of church discipline is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So in that context, I said, you know, I'm under church discipline every day. <laughs> Amen? I'm under church discipline every day. In that, because the living God indwells me, he convicts me, he chastens me, because a father who loves his children chastens those that are his. Yeah. He, we'll, we'll, we'll be reminded this morning in the sermon, you're in Christ. God actually delights in you. Now, you, you'll listen, and we, you meaning we, we'll, we'll listen to lies that, that, that cause us to think he looks at us with disgust, but that's not true. He delights in every single one who's in his Son because he perfectly, lovingly delights in his Son. Therefore, he delights in all who are in the Son. Right? Amen. Amen.